Section 19 of the Bible Under Trial. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Chris Pyle. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr. The Bible and Ethics. God and My Neighbor. Parts 1 through 3. The Bible is assailed on its ethical side. The attack has been continuous from the days of Celsus and the Gnostics in the second century, down through the deists of the eighteenth century, to the philosophical, critical, and free-thinking schools of our own day. Sometimes there is a genuine zeal for morality in the accusations made. At other times, as in the coarser free-thinking organs, the attacks are wanton, ribald, and vulgar. The shapes which this assault upon the Bible assumes are protean. The character of Jehovah in the Old Testament is vehemently assaulted. The ancient Gnostics represented the God of the Old Testament as partial, passionate, vindictive, cruel, and many moderns reiterate the charge. Even a writer of the better order, like Dr. Ladd, does not hesitate in his recent book on the philosophy of religion to endorse the statement the black man of some shivering communistic savages is nearer the morality of our Lord than the Jehovah of Judges. Volume 1, page 226. If that be so, it need not be said that the Jehovah of Judges is no true God, and there is no meaning in speaking of revelation in connection with him. Much of the teaching in the Old Testament is denounced as barbarous. Its heroes are pilloried as unworthy and immoral. Footnote. Mr. Blatchford on the heroes of the Bible in his book God and My Neighbor. It seems strange to me, he says, that such men as Moses, David, and Solomon should be glorified by Christian men and women who execrate Henry VIII and Richard III as monsters. My pet aversion among the Bible heroes is Jacob, but Abraham and Lot were pitiful creatures. Is Lot a Bible hero? In footnote. The prophets are commonly allowed to have higher conceptions, but even they are held in many ways to have fallen short of perfect morality. Jesus himself, while generally an object of reverence, does not wholly escape censure. His ideals are thought to be visionary and impractical. Extremists like Nietzsche go further and rave against him as the arch-misleader of the race. His morality is a morality for slaves. Paul's doctrines are alleged to have an immoral tendency. The inferences which the Apostle repudiated as blasphemy, let us do evil that good may come, Romans chapter 3 verse 8, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, Romans chapter 6 verse 1, are held to be the true outcome of his teaching. All this seems very shocking, but it has to be dealt with. No one denies there are genuine moral difficulties in the Bible, as there are in the ordinary providence of God, but this is not the spirit in which to approach them. If there is one force that has wrought for the moral upbuilding of mankind more than another, every candid mind knows it is the Bible. It is not difficult to show that the greater number of these so-called difficulties, at any rate, are due to misconception and perversion that much of the argument against the morality of Bible is pure irrelevance, while if the Bible is regarded in the balance of its parts, in its true character as a progressive revelation, and in the total impression its teaching makes upon the mind, it is seen to be a book which, from its first page to its last, makes for righteousness, 
exalts holiness, condemns sin, aims at nothing so much as the complete conquest of evil in human hearts and subjugation of it throughout the universe. Part 1 I have said that many of the objections to the morality of the Bible arise from misconceptions and perversion. I need hardly stay to vindicate the character or religion of Jesus from Nietzsche's extravagances, or to show that the Bible is not committed to the approval of the sins it impartially narrates, even in the case of those who are called its heroes. What is to be said of the character and shortcomings of these will be seen after. But even those who have higher ideas of the morality of Israel make sometimes very indefensible statements. It is difficult to understand, e.g., how a writer like Dr. Buchanan Gray can permit himself to say, as he does in his Divine Discipline of Israel, that the Hebrews were bound by moral obligation and the sanction of religion in their dealings with one another, but were entirely free of these in their dealings with foreigners. Page 48. What grounds exist for such a statement? Who can read the early chapters of the Bible without seeing that it is constantly assumed that there are moral laws which bind Hebrews and heathens alike, and that the transgression of these is sin, which the judge of all earth, Genesis, chapter 18, verse 25, must punish. Why else the judgment of the flood, Genesis, chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, the destruction of the cities of the plain, Genesis, chapter 18, verse 20, the rooting out of the Canaanites, Genesis, chapter 15, verse 16, Leviticus, chapter 18, verses 24 and following, Deuteronomy, chapter 12, Verses 29 and following. Had Abraham no sense of rights as between man and man in his transactions with the sons of Heth about a burying place? Genesis chapter 23. Or Joseph and his behavior in the house of his master the Egyptian? Genesis chapter 39, verses 4 through 6 and 9. Even in the passage which Dr. Gray cites in support of his theme, Abraham's passing off his wife as his sister at Gerar, Abimelech reproaches Abraham, Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. Genesis chapter 20, verse 9. Many of the objections to the ethics of the Bible arise for ignoring the laws of progress and revelation, which in respect of morality is one that must certainly be recognized. It was as impossible in the 20th century before Christ, as it is in the 20th century after Christ, to introduce a ready-made system of morality, perfect in all its principles and applications, and carried out with full consistency in an ideal constitution of society. It may in our eyes be a drawback that society is constituted on the principle of historical evolution. And so it is, and even Revelation has to take account of the fact. I do not undervalue the amount of moral light which even the ancient world possessed. As the study of ancient religion shows, Babylonia, Egypt, that moral light was often very great. The world, as Paul affirms, had from the first a great deal more light, both religious and moral, than it knew well how to make use of. Romans chapter 1, verses 21, 25, and 28. Yet there is progress. One has only to compare the conceptions of these ancient times, even within the Bible, and with those of later periods, to see how much purer and more spiritual moral ideas had become in the days of the prophets, and how far even beyond the teaching of the prophets is the perfect spirituality of the law of love, as enunciated by Jesus Christ. Polygamy, slavery, 
marriage of near of kin, blood revenge, corporate responsibility, the unsparing use of the sword in war, were features of that old society into which revelation entered, and it was plainly impossible to abolish them at a stroke. Christianity itself, while inculcating principles which strike at the root of slavery, war, and many other evils, has even yet not been able to banish these evils wholly from society, though it is working steadily to that end. What then was possible at an earlier time but to take a single people out of the mass, or rather develop such a people from the individual and family, and starting, as was inevitable, at the stage the world then occupied to train and discipline the selected people, under the guidance of special revelation, to something better for the ultimate benefit of the whole of mankind? Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And as we know, this was actually the method adopted. When this principle of development in God's methods is grasped, the right perspective is obtained, and each stage and phase of revelation is judged of by itself in the light of its aim and outcome, instead of being unhistorically judged by the standards of a more perfect time, a law of judgment the moralist would apply to nothing else. It does not follow that all difficulties disappear, but we are now, at least, in the right position for dealing with them. It becomes apparent how, in the history of God's dealing with his people, many forces, for instance, the great religious ideas embodied in patriarchal and mosaic revelations, the principles of the moral law itself as expanded in the statutes and judgments given at Sinai, with the various checks and restraints put on practices as blood revenge, polygamy, slavery, which it was not possible to remove at once, tended of necessity to a gradual elevation of the moral ideal and to the ultimate abolition of the practices in question. It cannot but strike us that polygamy, slavery, blood revenge, and similar evils had all but disappeared in the time of our Lord, and hardly appear in the pictures of Jewish society in the Gospels. Part 2. The real character of the biblical revelation may now be looked at, and the objections taken to it in an ethical respect considered. It is, first of all, I would say, falsehood and calumny to speak of the Jehovah of the Old Testament as a capricious, cruel, passionate, and vengeful being. Caprice, partiality, favoritism have reference, I suppose, to the law of election which conspicuously marks the divine procedure in Revelation. But arbitrariness is the last word to apply to this method of the divine action. What God does in his elections he does on wise and holy grounds. His election, which is a historical necessity, if a beginning is to be made somewhere, and his purpose is not to lose itself in indefiniteness, but is to be realized along definite lines, has not for its object exclusion, but an ultimate wider inclusion. Abraham was called that in him and his seed all families of the earth should be blessed. Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. Israel was chosen to be God's servant, to carry the knowledge of God, in due time to the Gentiles. Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 1 through 8, etc. To speak of Jehovah's choice of Israel as a piece of private favoritism is to show a colossal ignorance of the ABC of the Bible's teaching. The other imputations on the divine character are equally baseless. From the beginning of the Bible, God is represented as a holy and righteous being, condemning sin, punishing the evildoer, protecting and rewarding the righteous. Everywhere His holiness... Righteousness, wrath against sin, condescending grace, and covenant-keeping faithfulness are implied. Holiness, 
as the principle which guards the eternal distinction between creator and creature, Martinson, necessarily reveals itself in God as a zeal or jealousy for his own honor. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. And in reaction against daring and presumptuous transgression as wrath. Without an indignation that burns against sin in proportion to its heinousness, God would not be God, the absolutely holy one. Mercy or forgiveness would be emptied of all its value were there not this sense of the evil of sin and of God's holy judgment upon it behind. But cruel and vindictive the God of the Bible is not. On the contrary, his character is essentially merciful. Witness his name as revealed in awful majesty to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God full of compassion and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, though it is added, that will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7, cross-reference Psalm 103 verses 8 through 18. The history is but a prolonged commentary on this character of God. It is stamped upon his law. It is written in his exhortations and commands. If this is the true character of the Jehovah of the Bible, the answer is already given to many of the objections drawn from the Bible characters. Jehovah's command to Abraham was, Walk before me and be thou perfect. Genesis chapter 17 verse 1. Abraham's own challenge to him was, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. As his intercession for Sodom shows, Abraham knew perfectly clearly the distinction between righteous and wicked. It is therefore incredible that the intention of the narrator should be to represent God as approving of, or indifferent to, Abraham's prevarications about his wife, which the patriarch weakly excused to his own conscience by the half-truth that Sarah was his sister by the father's side. Genesis chapter 20, verse 12. The plagues by which the sin was prevented showed God's estimate of the transaction. Genesis chapter 12, verse 17, and chapter 20, verse 18. God destroyed wicked Sodom with fire and brimstone. Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. How then should he be supposed to do aught but abominate the vileness of that city, or any taint that Lot or his daughters had contracted from it? David sinned grievously about Bathsheba and her husband. No palliation can be offered for his offense. But God sent Nathan to David to denounce him for his crime and declare his sore punishment, a denunciation which led to the king's sincere repentance. 2 Samuel chapter 12 How should it be represented as if the God of the Bible were implicated in or condoned David's transgression? I have read carefully in the book of Judges. It is the story of a rude, disorderly, in many ways evil time. Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. But what I see chiefly in the narrative is that when Israel forsook God, he gave them into the hands of their enemies, and they were grievously afflicted. But whenever they turned to him with the whole heart, he raised up saviors for them, and delivered them. When, moreover, I read of Deborah, of Gideon, of Boaz, and Ruth, I cannot regard this age with all its faults as wholly destitute of a nobler piety. The men of the Bible must be judged by the standard of their own age, not by ours. Judged even by that, they have faults grievous and many. And as respects these, are set forth as examples for our warning, 
not as models for imitation. But the wholesale blackening of their characters in which certain writers indulge can only be described as malicious and unpardonable exaggeration. Only the crassest, surely, will believe that God chose Jacob as heir of the blessing because of his worldly cunning in overreaching Esau, or that David is pronounced to be the man after God's own heart because of his adultery with Bathsheba. There were far other and deeper things in these men, or they would not have occupied the place they do in the Bible. Despite his error in his evasion about his wife, an error which he, no doubt, thought an excusable means of defense for both, the character of Abraham is one of the noblest in the history of religion. Footnote. See the remarks of Maudsley on Abraham in his Ruling Ideas, etc., page 21 and following. End of footnote. His heroic faith, his prompt and unhesitating obedience to God's word, his largest of soul, which displays itself in all his conduct, his unfailing courtesy, unselfishness, and meekness, with which is joined, when need arises, the most conspicuous courage and decision, all vindicate for him the place he will continue to hold at the head of revelation, as the father of the faithful. Jacob's is a more complex character, deep, subtle, with a strong gravitation earthwards and a tendency to craft, inherited perhaps from his mother, but nonetheless with a strong religious bent, a grasp of the ideal, a power of responding to God's revelations, a sense of the value of spiritual privilege, and on the whole a patient, faithful, affectionate spirit, which grew nobler and better as time went on. The substance, the strength of the chosen family, as Stanley says, the true inheritance of the promise to Abraham was interwoven with the very essence of the upright man dwelling in tents, steady, persevering, moving onward with deliberate, settled purpose, through years of suffering and prosperity, of exile and return, of bereavement and recovery. The dark crafty character of the youth, though never wholly lost, for Jacob he is still called even to the end of his days, has been by trial and affliction changed into the prince-like, god-like character of his manhood. Footnote. Jewish Church, Volume 1, pages 46 and 56. See the whole sketch in Stanley in contrast with Mr. Blatchford's caricature of his pet aversion. End of footnote. David's character has its huge dark blot, and minor faults may be pointed out in it. But no impartial student of David's history can easily deny that the character which the Bible gives him as a man and king, who sought to do God's will, is well sustained throughout. His youth is blameless. His behavior at the court of Saul is without reproach. His relations with Saul and Jonathan are magnanimous and affectionate. His conduct as leader of a band of rude, rough men in the wilderness is such as to inspire them with the most devoted attachment. Second Samuel Chapter 23, verses 15 through 18. His sorrow at the death of Saul and Jonathan is genuine and intense. His services to his nation as king were the greatest a ruler could render. His labors for the revival of religion and the worthy celebration of God's worship were the fruit of sincere conviction. The whole foundation of his character in his love to and trust in God, his rock, are laid bare in such a psalm as the 18th, which there need be no hesitation in ascribing to him. As I have said elsewhere, David's sins were great, but we may trust a Carlyle or a Maurice for a just estimate of his character, rather than the cavalier whose chief delight is to magnify his faults. Footnote. Problems of the Old Testament. Page 445. Cross-reference Carlyle, Heroes. 
page 72, Maurice, Prophets and Kings, pages 60 and following. End of footnote. Part 3. These attacks, then, on the characters of the men of the Bible may be dismissed. But what, it will be objected, of the other strains in the narrative, of God's tempting of Abraham, of his visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children, of his commands to exterminate the Canaanites, it will be well to glance at these objections separately. The story of the sacrifice of Isaac stands in close connection with what is told of the gift of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, and with the hopes bound up in that child of promise. In this lay the essence of the trial. The story itself, it may be noted, is a witness to the early date of the narrative. The temptation described is such as could only belong to an early stage in the history. No Israelite would have invented such a tale about his progenitor, and the narrative cannot be explained as a reminiscence of any tribal event. The incident clearly presupposes that in Abraham's day, human sacrifice, especially the devotion of the firstborn to God, was a familiar fact of Canaanitish religion. That the temptation to sacrifice his son arose, as some suppose, from Abraham's own thoughts, seems to me, in all the circumstances of the case, most improbable. The test was one truly imposed on him by the God who had given him his son. The object of the trial, however, was not to give approval of human sacrifice, but, as the event showed, after proof had been obtained of Abraham's willingness to surrender even his dearest and best at the call of God, Genesis chapter 22, verse 12, to put on such sacrifice the stamp of the divine disappropriation and rule it out of God's worship for all time thereafter. Standing at the commencement of revelation to Israel, this incident barred out all thought of human sacrifice as an acceptable form of God's service. When objection is taken to the language in the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20 verse 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 8, about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the question may first be put, is it not the fact? that in the natural order of things, the sins of parents are visited upon their children. What is the law of heredity but the declaration of this fact? One of the most terrible aspects of wrongdoing is that the penalties are seldom or never confined to the transgressor, but overflow on all connected with him, often most severely on his innocent offspring. This follows from the solidaric constitution of society. But the point is missed in the second commandment when the stress is laid on the unrelieved operation of this providential law. The contrast in this place is rather with what is said in the next clause about God showing mercy unto thousands of them that love him. Exodus chapter 20 verse 6. The entail of evil is viewed as descending only to the third and fourth generation. God is reluctant, as it were, to think of it descending further. But his mercy in contrast is viewed as descending to thousands of generations. Cross-reference, Psalm 103, verse 17. Mercy in the prospect swallows up judgment. How different an aspect does the commandment assume when regarded in this light? The destruction of the Canaanites represents a real difficulty which everyone, I suppose, in proportion to the humanity of his disposition, feels. The various expedients which have been suggested for relieving it, do not, I confess, bring much help to the mind. I can neither persuade myself, with the critics, that the command was not really given, nor can I rid my mind 
of the sense of awfulness in connection with it. One thing, however, I do see, that the judgment was not an arbitrary one, but was connected with a moral state. It had a moral basis. If the land was already, in the days of Abraham, promised to his descendants, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, chapter 15, verse 7 and 18, chapter 18, verse 8, this was not without regard to the character of the inhabitants. The fulfillment is delayed to a later time, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Sodom and Gomorrah already in that age furnished examples of the growing wickedness of the land. Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 18, chapter 18, verse 20, and chapter 19. The violence of the inhabitants was such that in the days of Moses the land spewed them out. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 24 to 30. Their transgressions are dwelt on in Deuteronomy, verse 12, verses 29 to 32. Corruption, in short, had eaten into the core of this people. What was to be done with them? When the ancient world had become similarly corrupt, God destroyed it by a flood. Genesis Chapter 6, verses 5-8, through eight, and 11-13. through 13. When the Canaanites had filled up the cup of their iniquity, he gave them over to the sword of the Israelites. After all, as Otley says, quoting Westcott, the Canaanites were put under the ban, not for false belief, but for vile actions. Footnote, Aspects of the Old Testament, page 179, end of footnote. Nor was there any partiality in this, as I have said in my own Problems of the Old Testament. The sword of the Israelite is, after all, only a more acute form of the problem that meets us in the providential employment of the sword by the Assyrian, the Chaldean, or Roman to inflict the judgment of God on Israel itself. Pages 471-472 If the difficulty is acute in the case of the Canaanites, we have to remember that this case, on account of its special aggravation, stands all but alone. Though belonging to a dispensation of severity, under which every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, yet judged of as a whole, and in its prevailing spirit, the law of Moses is not unmerciful. It is the very opposite. A spirit of humanity breathes through it such as is not met with in any other ancient code. Its laws of warfare even have many humane and considerate provisions. Deuteronomy chapter 12. They give no sanction to the dreadful barbarities and tortures, the impalings, flayings, blindings, mutilations, etc., of Assyrian and Babylonian conquerors. Footnote. David's treatment of the Moabites, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2, and Ammonites, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 31, in this case under great provocation, and Amaziah's of the Edomites, 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 12, are not to be approved. For another spirit, cross-reference, 2 Chronicles, chapter 25, verses 3 and 4, the law, 2 Kings, chapter 6, verses 21 to 23, the prophets. The severe treatment of Adonabesic in Judges, chapter 1, verse 6, is somewhat different. It was, as he acknowledged in verse 7, a not unrighteous retribution for his own habitual cruelty. End of footnote. In besieging a city, the very fruit trees are to be spared, Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verses 19 through 20. Captive women are to be delicately treated, Deuteronomy, 
chapter 21, verses 10 to 14, The poor, the widow, the fatherless, the stranger, the homeless, the distressed, are Jehovah's special care, and his law is full of provisions for them. Cross-reference, Exodus, chapter 22, verses 21 through 27, chapter 23, verses 9 through 12, Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verses 7 and following, chapter 24, verses 14 through 22, etc. Private ill will is not to be allowed to enter into the treatment of an enemy. Exodus, chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, Deuteronomy, chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. An illustration may be taken from the laws on bond service, which are often spoken of as a dark spot in the Hebrew legislation. The Mosaic law did not establish bond service. It accepted it as an existing usage, laboring to the utmost to reduce and, as far as that was practicable, to abolish the evils connected with it. If from temporary causes a Hebrew lost the use of his freedom, the right to it was not thereby destroyed. It returned to him at the beginning of the seventh year. Exodus, chapter 21, verse 2, Leviticus, chapter 25, verses 39 and following. A law cannot be regarded as favorable to slavery, which makes man-stealing a crime punishable by death. Exodus, chapter 21, verse 16, and which enacts that a fugitive slave, taking refuge in Israel from his heathen master, is not to be delivered back to him, but is to be permitted to reside where he will in the land. Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. Bondsmen, both Hebrew and non-Israelite, were incorporated as part of the nation, had legal rights, sat with the other members of the family at the board of the Passover, took part in all religious festivals, and had secured to them the privilege of the Sabbath rest. The master was responsible for the treatment of his bondsman, and if he injured him, even to the extent of smiting out a tooth, the bondsman thereby regained his freedom. Exodus chapter 21 verses 26 and 27. Humanity and kindness were constantly inculcated. When the Hebrew bondsman went out in the seventh year, he was to go forth loaded with presents. The one seeming exception is Exodus chapter 21, verse 20, the passage about the bondsman dying under chastisement. This, however, must be taken in connection with preceding laws. It certainly gives no sanction to the master to endanger his servant's life. The question is one of criminal jurisprudence. The case is presumed to be one of bona fide chastisement with the rod, and murderous intent. If present, had to be proved. If the slave died under the master's hand, such intent, at least sinful excess of anger, was held to be proved, and the master was surely punished. If he did not, even though he died afterwards, the master received the benefit of the doubt and escaped with a fine of money. The obvious aim of the law is not to place the bondsman at the master's mercy, but to restrict the master's power over him. Ancient law recognized no restriction. The whole design of the law, in one word, was to make men holy, as God was holy. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. It was based on a moral code which, as Jesus said, had for its two great principles, love to God and love to one's neighbor. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. On this moral law was built the covenant between God and Israel. The tables of stone on which it was written, the tables of the testimony, 
Exodus chapter 32, verse 15, were the only objects in the Ark of the Covenant in Israel's holiest place. Footnote. See my problem of the Old Testament. Page 48. End of footnote. So far as the law mirrors it, the religion of Israel is ethical in its inmost fiber. I need not delay long on the ethical conceptions, for the elevated moral strain of these is uncommonly admitted. The critics in the main are with us here, for according to them it was the prophets who first gave a perfectly ethical character to Israel's religion. The prophets are nothing if they are not preachers of righteousness. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17 He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 The Psalms in every line express an abhorrence of evil, and love of truth, righteousness, and mercy. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24 verses 3 and 4 Cross-reference Psalm 1, Psalm 15, etc. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51, verses 6-10 through 10. The book of Proverbs is a vedimicum to a straight, pure, virtuous life. He who guides himself by its wisdom will not go astray, but will find its counsels profitable for the life that now is, as well as, for that which is to come. Proverbs, chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 8. The one point on which a caveat may be raised here is in regard to the imprecatory psalms. Here indeed a note is heard which belongs to an older dispensation, and which Christians, who have learned a higher lesson in the school of Jesus, cannot ordinarily imitate. If the frequent prayers for the destruction of enemies in the Psalms were the expression of private revengefulness or hatred, they could not, of course, under any dispensation be defended. But that very plainly is not their real nature. The spirit of private revengefulness is as heartily condemned in the Old Testament as in the New. Cross-reference, Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, Psalm 7, verse 4. It is proud and triumphant wickedness, enmity to God and to his cause and people, which is the subject of these denunciations, prayers, and imprecations of doom. Let anyone read such psalms as the 4th, 7th, ninth, 10th, 12th, etc., and see if there is not a very real sense in which he can even yet sometimes share in them. End of section 19